Oh, Father, may we behold with the eyes of faith the matchless glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures for the hearts of the faithful to see. And in seeing the one who is altogether lovely, may we bow in worship, lift our voices in praise, and go forth to follow his leading. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it was the gift of the French government, the gift of friendship given to America. I'm referring to the Statue of Liberty. Dedicated in 1886, the month of October, restored 100 years later at the centennial for the July 4th celebration, 1986. The universal symbol of liberty and freedom and democracy. I suppose next to our flag, this is perhaps the greatest symbol that we have in America. You can't go into New York Harbor, look from a vista at a distance, travel in the city of New York without seeing this statue and having your heart be moved, right? I mean, if you know anything about liberty, especially if you're an immigrant or your parents or grandparents were immigrants and they came to this country and you heard the stories coming from a place of tyranny, bound by wretched laws, no voice, and they longed to come to the land of freedom and opportunity. And when their ship came toward Ellis Island and they saw that statue, they could not control their emotions. Their hearts were won over. It was sometime in the 70s that I heard for the first time the song that the Watterson, Waterman sang so beautifully just a moment ago, the Statue of Liberty. I think I heard it from Dick Anthony and the 16 Singing Men. Remember that? If you do, that ages you. But it's a great song, and I love the way the song brings together two amazing symbols. The words go like this. We just heard them. In New York Harbor stands a lady with a torch raised to the sky, and all who see her know she stands for liberty for you and me. I'm so glad to be called an American, to be named with the brave and the free. I will honor our flag and our trusting God and the statue of liberty. Nothing wrong with being proud to be an American, American. not arrogant. Don't become one of those arrogant proud, loud ambassadors of poor will across the nations when you travel, the ugly American syndrome. We think we're better than everyone else. That's not the case, but I am thankful that I am an American and for the freedoms we enjoy. And never forget that those freedoms were born in the atmosphere, in the preaching, and from the exegesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that song written by Neil Enloe quickly goes in the first stanza to the second verse. And now we have a second symbol of freedom, don't we? The cross. On lonely Golgotha stood a cross with my Lord raised to the sky. And all who kneel there live forever. 
as all the saints can testify. I'm so glad to be called a Christian, to be named with the ransom and whole. As the statue liberates the citizen, so the cross liberates the soul. Great words. And I'm glad for that second verse, aren't you, that takes us to the universal symbol of forgiveness of sin, of love from God, of peace with God, the cross, the mighty cross. And there's one key word that ought to associate with both of these symbols, the liberty won in our land of America and the liberty provided by the death of Christ on the cross. One key word, it's the word remember. Remember me. We need to remember things that are crucial. We need to remember things that are life-changing and foundational. And I think that's what Peter's getting at when he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to write these things to remind you. Open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter and the very first chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 12 says, Peter writes, So I will always remind you of these things. What are these things? Well, the antecedent would be the first ten verses we've already studied. In general, everything that has been discussed. In particular, these things are the seven things you are to add to the faith. If these things are in you and abound, they render you neither idle nor unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I, I want to remind you of these things. But in a, in a very broad sense, it's everything Peter is going to mention in his second epistle. Because when you get to chapter 3, he's going to say it again. I want to remind you of these things. You have to remember that Peter has been told by the Lord that he's soon going to die. And this is his last shot. <laughs> his last shot at his congregation. So he says in verse 12, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and you're firmly established in the truth you now have. Do you know these things, Peter says? You do? Are you established in them? Good. Let me remind you anyhow. Until it's pedantic, until I have repeated it so often that the repetition becomes irritating, until you want to stop your ears and say, give us something different, aha, then I know you've got it. I want to repeat it till you're sick of it. What did your parents say to you over and over and over again that made you sick because they kept saying it over and over and over again? You remember it today, and that's why they repeated it. It's a good thing to be reminded of what we already know. Because the tendency is to put those things that we already know back in the recesses of our mind, back in the fog of our memory. And if they're crucial things and we forget them, then our life is like a ship without a rudder. Peter goes on to say in verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent, my body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Somehow Jesus said to Peter, this is your last message. Make it good. 
What would you say to loved ones and friends if this was your last message? If you knew it was going to be the last thing you could say? I hope I live for a few more years, and I hope I have many other sermons to preach. But this week as I was studying, I thought, what would I want to say to South Church if this was my last sermon? And I thought I would want to say what Peter said. Remember your Savior. Remember Jesus. Because Peter's going to say a lot of good things in this epistle, but one thing he wants to do is mention the Savior. He mentions the Savior, the term Savior, five different times. And in it gives us his Petrine theology, a small dose of teaching on what the Saviorhood of Jesus really means. And just before he fades off the scene, he wants to burn into the hearts of those that have heard him preach time and time again what he sees as the most crucial message. Remember your Savior. We do this in remembrance of him. So here are the five verses, and we'll just have to go over them rather quickly. The first one is found in the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. First point, Peter says, I want you to remember is this. Our Savior is God. Jesus is God. Now, I have to get technical just for a moment. There's something that is actually in the original translation that we sometimes don't get in the English translation. It says, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In Greek grammar, there is a rule called the Granville Sharp rule because Mr. Granville Sharp made it popular. But the rule is rather simple. When there are two nouns connected by the word and, in the Greek language, chi. Two nouns connected by chi. But there's only one article, one definite article for the two nouns. The two nouns refer to the same person or thing. Got it? If you had two definite articles, they might refer to two different things. Don't always have to. But if there's only one article, two nouns connected with the little word and, they're referring to the same person or thing. Therefore, we read verse 1 like this. It is the righteousness of God, our God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Jesus are the same. Never forget that, Peter said. When you come to communion service, never forget that it's not just the sacrifice of a great teacher. It wasn't just the, uh, the martyrdom of a wonderful prophet. This is God dying for you. Never forget that. Our Savior is God himself. Is there mystery in it? To be sure. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are not three gods. That's heresy. There's one God who manifests himself in three persons. And they're all mentioned here, even in chapter 1. And so Peter simply says, I want you to remember that Jesus is God. Now, you can go to a lot of places in the Bible to prove this doctrine. I love to go to Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus did not think it robbery to hang on to the title, equal 
with God. Uses the Greek word isos, where we get isometric, isosceles, triangle, talking about measurements of equal length. Jesus is equal with God. Or Hebrews chapter 1, where we're told that God the Father and God the Son share the same exact essence and nature. Oh, they have different function in the Trinity. The Father planning and the Son procuring and the Spirit applying. But they are one in essence. Jesus is God. It is a mystery how he can be 100% man and 100% God, but that's the only way that you and I can have atonement for our sin. For there to be atonement for us, he has to be a man. For there to be atonement for us, he has to be perfect. And Jesus is the only one who qualifies. Peter says, remember this, our Savior is God. Secondly, remember this, verse 11 of chapter 1, our Savior has a kingdom. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're born again, he will wash all of your sin away and give you peace. Then you are to add to your faith those seven things that he talked about. Add to your faith knowledge and goodness and brotherly kindness and love and perseverance. Those seven things you don't do those to get saved. You do those because you are saved. They prove that you are saved. And if you do those seven things, verse 11 says, you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich welcome. We said last week it was like a returning Olympic hero coming back to a ticker tape parade. You see, Jesus is a king, and Jesus has a kingdom. And when that message was preached, when Jesus came to this earth, it caused a lot of confusion because the kingdom of God, get this, is already but not yet. Does that blow a fuse? It's kind of like the two natures of Christ. It's kind of like the Trinity. It's because in every Bible doctrine, there is this infinite and finite coming together with a degree of non-closure, a gap that can never be spanned. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is a king, and when he came, he said, the kingdom is present with you. In a spiritual sense, his presence meant the kingdom. But they thought physical sense. And that's why when Jesus was crucified, they didn't get it. They were hoping for a kingdom to put down Rome. But the kingdom's not just spiritual. The kingdom is physical. And that's why you and I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. We're praying for a physical, literal kingdom of God on earth. That's the not yet part. The already part is that every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has the reign of the king in their soul. You're members of his kingdom right now if you're a Christian. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, Colossians says. It's the kingdom of Jesus, the son of his love. So understand that Jesus has a kingdom. And it's been prophesied in the book of Daniel that all the kingdoms of this world are going to come crashing down when the kingdom, the stone cut 
without the aid of man, comes flying down and crashes the image of man. Or in the book of the Revelation, all the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. I love that. One day there'll only be one kingdom, and it'll be the kingdom of Christ. Righteous and universal. All the kingdoms right now are jockeying for position. Who knows what Russia is doing? What's happening over in Kiev? The battle in the Middle East is constant for rule and authority, and, and it will continue in South America and all around the world until all these kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that kingdom. Remember, our Savior has a kingdom. It's now and it's coming. Thirdly, remember that our Savior calls us out of corruption. This takes us to chapter 2, verse 20. But let me give you just a little bit of background. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers, and we'll get into more detail when we get there. But they're described in verse 17 that uh, these false teachers are described as men who are like springs without water, mist driven by a storm, Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So there's a group of people who are kind of escaping from the false teachers, and that's who they prey on. There's a group of people who are kind of moving from the world toward Christ, and that's who the false teachers prey on. The false teachers, verse 19, promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever masters him. Verse 20, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in the world, the corruption in the world, and overcome by it, why their end is worse than their beginning. You say, aha, I see that the Scripture teaches a person can lose his salvation. No, no, my friend, it's not teaching that at all. If you go on a little further in the text, it says a dog goes back to his vomit and a pig goes back to the mire because that's what their nature is. They got cleaned up on the outside, but they were never changed on the inside. Now, what happens to a person who gets cleaned up on the outside but isn't a Christian? Well, they can escape some of the corruption that is in the world by coming close to the people who know Jesus Christ. I dare say there are people who attend South Church on a regular basis who've got cleaned up on the outside, but you've never become a Christian in your heart. God knows, you know, but the rest of us don't. You look like a Christian is supposed to look in the 20th century. You talk like a Christian is supposed to talk. You do the things that most Christians do, at least outwardly, and everyone thinks you're in the kingdom, and you have escaped some corruption in this world by playing the role of a Christian. But someday soon, you're going to return to what your heart truly loves, and your end will be worse than your beginning. The point that is being made here is that when Jesus saves people, he does take them out of the corruption of the world. 
Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. If you want to participate in the divine nature, you do so by escaping from the corruption that is in the world, that is driven by lust. Jesus not only wants to save you from the penalty of eternal sin, uh, of the eternal penalty of sin, he wants to save you from the power of sin right now. And he wants, this is a blessed thing, he wants to help you escape from the misery of the corruption and decay that this world offers. And so Peter says, I want you to remember that there are some people who look like they're Christians, but they aren't. And yet our Savior longs to take people out of this corrupt, dying world. Fourthly, our Savior has spoken to men through men. This is chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 1. Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I know you know these things, Peter says. I know you're established in them. Ah, let me just say them again. Over and over, Peter gives the same message. So he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Our Savior has spoken to men through men. When Jesus was here, he was the living word. He is still the living word today. But he was visible. They could hear and see him. When he left, the Gospel of John said, he gave to his apostles the truth. And he said, when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit's going to bring back to your memory the things I've taught you. And the apostles then recorded their doctrine, Acts chapter 2. It was the teaching of Jesus, and we are following the apostolic truth that came from the lips of Christ. Our Savior has spoken. Next week, Lord willing, we want to get into the end of 2 Peter chapter 1 that talks about the Word of God, knowing that no private, in, that the, knowing that no scripture, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the Bible was not fabricated, invented, manufactured by man, but it came from God, and holy men of God spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what you and I have is a book called the Bible that is reliable, authoritative, inerrant, true, trustworthy. It is a living book because it comes from the living God. And Jesus spoke the word to us. And every day, I hope you open up the Bible and say, Jesus, speak to me. You've got to get through some of the culture. You've got to peel back some of the layers of language. You've got to dig in for the biblical principles, but they're there. And when you come away from the scripture, you ought to be able to say, Jesus spoke to me through his word. And here it is. Now I know what to do. Jesus speaks today. Never forget that. Our Savior has spoken, and he continues to speak. And the last thing Peter wanted to mention by mentioning the Savior is in chapter 3, and it's this. Our Savior is worthy of glory forever. I just have to read verse 17. It's almost comical, isn't it? Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, let me tell you again. This is at least the third time he said this. You already know this, but... 
I'm going to say it again. Be on your guard. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless men we discussed in chapter 2 or the scoffers in chapter 3. And I don't want you to fall from your secure position. In chapter 1, verse 11, he said, you do these things and you will never stumble. I think it was verse 11. And now he says at the end of the book, I want you to stay secure in your position in Christ. Verse 18. I don't want you to stay inactive, though. I want you to grow. I want you to grow in the knowledge of God and in the grace of God. I want you to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the grace that ought to flow through your life as you apply that knowledge to your thinking and your speaking and your doing I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. That's how Peter signs off. Last thing I'm going to say, to him be glory forever. What a great message. If you turn to Revelation chapter 4, just for a moment. Revelation chapter 4. You'll see this is exactly what happens. Here's a scene in heaven. Just a few pages to the right from 2 Peter. Revelation chapter 4. Here's the scene in heaven. The living creatures are giving God glory, and the 24 elders are worshiping the Lord who sits on the throne and casting their crowns before him. Look at verse 11, the last verse of chapter 4. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things by your will, for your pleasure they were and are created. They exist. God is worthy of our praise. Now go to chapter 5. Same throne room in heaven, but now the song is aimed at Jesus. Verse 9, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made us kings in your kingdom and priests to our God. And we're going to reign with you on the earth. Verse 11, or verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What's this? In heaven they're singing praise to the Father in chapter 4 and praise to the Son in chapter 5. The only way you can do that is if Jesus is God. The Bible is clear. clear. You shall worship God only. But the Lamb is taking worship with the same song, as it were, a new rendition of you are worthy to receive glory and power and honor and strength. Get this, in verse 13, they're both brought together. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remember God said, I will not share my glory with another. Remember that? Here the Father is sharing it with the Son. What does that mean? Jesus is God. And throughout, throughout heaven forever, you and I will be singing praises 
But according to Peter, we need to start now. Glory to him now and forever. Live your life in such a way that he is glorified, that he is pleased that others get a good view of him. Magnify God in the eyes of others as you emphasize who he is and you demonstrate how he lives as the divine nature lives through you and you participate in this amazing, amazing thing called salvation. That's God's plan. And that's what Peter wants us to remember. That our Savior is God, that he has a kingdom, that he longs to take us out of corruption, that he speaks his truth to us, and that he is worthy of glory forever. Now notice, in every one of these references, connected with the word Savior is the word Lord. For that's who Jesus is. He is our Savior and our boss. And did you notice in every one of these phrases, you also have that wonderful personal pronoun, our, that collective, our Lord and Savior. You can't be blessed until you say, Jesus is mine, my Savior and my Lord. Thinking about the Statue of Liberty again, did you know it's not only a symbol of freedom, it is an invitation. It is a welcome invitation to the world. Now, because so many people want to come, we're having to discuss the whole issue of immigration. But the Statue of Liberty is an invitation to come. It was in 1883 that Emma Lazarus wrote a poem, and she actually wrote the poem to uh, collect funds, to raise funds so they could build a pedestal upon which the Statue of Liberty would sit. And then the poem was so good, they put it on a bronze plaque and put it on the pedestal that she helped pay for with her, her wonderful poem. Let me give you the first part of the poem. It's a bit edited, but it's an amazing invitation to all the world. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with torch in hand. Her name, Mother of Exiles, and her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Keeps, keep ancient lands your storied pomp, she cries with silent lips. Give to me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What a great poem. What's it saying? Come. Who's to come? Let's see, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. The people who are tempest-tossed, tired of tyranny, longing for liberty. Here's the golden door. The torch lights the way. The mother of exiles says, come. What about the cross? Did you know the cross is not only a symbol of freedom, it is a wonderful invitation to all? We've just had a service, and the first sermon preached 
were the elements, the bread and the wine. And although we could go to many scriptures to give the invitation of Jesus, I love the one in Matthew 11 that says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who is to come? The weary and the burdened. Who feel the burden and weight of their sin and long to be released, liberated from the tyranny of sin and its bondage and from the penalty of sin, which is death. It's like the wretched refuse of the teeming masses. If you feel your need, if you long for freedom and peace, come to the cross. Jesus says, come. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit and the church put out the invitation, come. And the one who hears says, come. And the one who's thirsty should come. And whoever desires to drink of that water that gives them life forevermore, let them come. I don't think the Bible could put it any clearer and any more beautifully. God wants you to come and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be liberated from your sin. It might be, and it is, a good thing to be called a Christian I mean, a, a, a citizen of America. But how sad it would be to have the liberties of a citizenship in this world and not be a Christian and experience the freedom and forgiveness of sin that lasts forever. Come and welcome to Jesus and your sins will be gone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word gives us this warm and compelling invitation. Some may not be believers here this morning. Maybe they are glad to be citizens of America, but they're not yet citizens of heaven. And the way to become one is simply to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that this moment, hearts will cry out, Lord, save me. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. In your name we pray. Amen.